have a reading from the Bible directly and then some other readings from the scriptures that are found in your bulletin. You can open up your bulletin and then also to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, which is found on 549 in the blue book that is in the pew, the Bible there. We'll really be drawing from all of these passages as we talk some this morning about repentance. Proverbs 28, verses 13 and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain Mercy. Last week we spoke about the importance of confession, of self-examination, of not making excuses and realizing that our sin is even against God himself. Trying to take heed of the seriousness and, and just openly pouring our hearts out to God exactly what's happening in our, in our lives. And so the prospect is concealing transgression or confessing but there's, there are two things, confessing and forsaking. Now, interesting, verse 14 as a couplet with that. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, which would mean who is one who is openly confessing and forsaking sin, being honest about that sin. But the corollary, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You might see the little structure, A-B-B-A. If you conceal your transgressions, you'll not prosper. And he rounds it off by saying, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So concealing your sin and hardening your heart are the same thing. And walking in the fear of God, trusting him and honoring him is the same as confessing our sin and forsaking that sin. So those are good two verses to take together and and compare. Then, if you look in your bulletin, that way we can get to these verses and not have to thumb through. Some more talk about repentance, this idea of forsaking sin. The Lord's bondservant, Paul is speaking to Timothy as a pastor. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And there's the idea of captivity, being in the snare, and then God granting repentance. Notice in Acts 20, 21, Paul summarizing his ministry in Ephesus, that he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Acts 26, again summarizing his ministry in the whole of the Mediterranean basin, declared first to those in Damascus, 
then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes to understand, to receive, to believe, to live out your precious word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, from Proverbs 28, we see that confession is coupled with forsaking sin. And we could say that if that all confession to be true confession is repentant confession. It's not simply a matter of saying to God what I have done. And that's to be done, as we've said, without excuse and to examine ourselves and to, and to admit that it's against him in particular. It's part of our animosity against God. That's what our sin really is. And we don't want to shy away in any uh, form or fashion from what our sin is against God. But a part of true confession is this repentance, this forsaking of sin. So to be what we would say life entering confession, a confession that is a part of the ongoing life of God, it will be part. It, it, there will be a forsaking of sin as well. You could have. A torn up heart, you could be torn to pieces inside about the mess you've made of your life, but still, in terms of verse 14, have a hardened heart against God. It's easy for us to be worried and bothered and torn to pieces over what's happened to our lives, but still, we have no regard for God Himself, and we are truly not forsaking sin in its essence. So, several things to say. Right at the first, then, I would summarize this, that repentance abandons sin for God. Okay? Repentance abandons sin for God. One of the uh, uses of this word, abandon or forsake, is an ostrich abandoning its eggs to die. Or the idea of a man abandoning his family and the, the end of relationship, that terrible thing of a man abandoning and having no more regard, no love and care for, no relationship to his family. It is wrong for a man to abandon his family, but it is good for a man to abandon his sin. See, leave it. Turn your back upon it. Turn your affections away from it. Do not give it your attentions anymore. Do not have a regard for it anymore. It's not just the physical leaving of it. It's the turning your heart away from sin and abandoning it in your heart. And that's where the grace of God comes in, you see. It's not just stopping a habit. It's abandoning sin from the heart. We turn our back on sin. We desert our sin. And part of that is abandoning sin for God. This is seen in the text. It says repentance toward God. It doesn't say in uh, uh, Acts twenty twenty one repentance from sin. 
But there's a direction to it. We come to God. It's not defined in just terms of sin, but in terms of God. It is a return to God himself or it's not repentance. It's not just a correcting of your lifestyle. It's not just cleaning up your acts, stopping a few bad habits, changing your ways, getting your life together, trying to do better. It's a fixed lifetime objective, constantly renewed to trust God, to live in fellowship with God, to worship and please Him in all that we do. And it's constantly renewed. It's a relationship with God. And that's how Rick Downs puts it in the sonship material, that repentance is not just behavioral, it's relational. There's a relationship you have with sin. There's a love. We still are kind of stuck in some ways in the family of sin as to our practice. And we're constantly abandoning that for Christ. We have been put in a new family of God and we belong to God and we are dead to sin. And we constantly want to live out that deadness and constantly forsake sin. So it's a change in how I regard God. It's a change in how I love him. Loving Him more deeply. It's a change in His place in my life. It means that He will be more adored and trusted and delighted in in some way as I make this move. See, it's relational. It has to do with God and me, God and you. In the New Testament, the word is metanoia. That is a change of mind. And it simply means a change from the inside out, a change of mind and attitude toward God, a change of mind of attitude toward sin that results in a change of life. So when you are turning from sin, is it that turning to embrace him? Is it a reckon? You see, this is part of what we said last week, recognizing, as David did in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. See, even in the confession, you're recognizing this has to do with my relationship. This has to do with my remaining distaste for you and your authority. My remaining neglect and rejection of your grace. And, and I was turning away from that grace as I sinned. Oh, Lord, I turn to you afresh to embrace you. It gives a sweetness to me in, in repentance. To make it personal and intimate with our God. It shows the importance, it shows the nature of sin, you see. It's not just stopping this and doing that, it's always personal. My father, years ago, had a a case brought against him. He's a doctor, and it was a frivolous case. Um, my My dad happens to be one of these fine, excellent, you know, very responsible doctors, and it was a frivolous case that was thrown out of court about the minute it started, you know, in the first few minutes. And this uh, egregious man that was known for his bad reputation, uh, attorney, came up to my daddy and held out his hand. He said, hey, nothing personal. <laughs> he said, I, I couldn't say his hand at that point. It was very, very personal. He'd have been an attack on my integrity and my responsibility. And uh, it would bring darkness to my whole practice, etc." And uh, we can't go to God and say nothing personal. It's always, always personal. It's against him always. The good news is that he 
covers us in the precious work of Jesus. And it's in the context of his love to us. It's in the context of our union with Christ. Uh, We'll get to more of this, but let's never make it anything than personal. So it's it's an abandoning of sin for God. Secondly, though, repentance is from God. It comes from God. It's the gift of God. We see that in 1 Timothy. That he may grant them repentance. It never comes from ourselves. It is, in the words of our own catechism, question number 87, a saving grace. It's one of the ways God saves us. It's part of his salvation. We are, of course, called to repent and we're directly addressed in repentance. But just like with faith, it is a gift from God. I referred in some uh, earlier to Ephesians 2, where Ephesians 2 begins talking about our being dead in sin and trespasses. It ends, it talks about how we're controlled by by the evil one and how we walk after the course of this world. And it ends by saying, by nature, we're children of wrath. By nature, we deserve the wrath of God. And there's no little gray middle ground, but we begin changing. We begin doing this. We begin to meet God halfway. We got better and better. And finally, God reward. It's just you walk from that deadness and under wrath to but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. Made us alive. How did he find us? Dead. That's not just a description of, of something physical about us. It's we're so fixed in our sinfulness, in our rebellion against God. You could just say he is dead to God. You, know, you see some people you think, man, they're just dead to feeling that they would do this to that person. That they would have hurt that child in that way. He must be just something dead inside of him. And that's the way Paul describes us. There's, you're just dead to God. And we didn't fix ourselves. We didn't meet God in some way. He made us alive. That's the point of Ephesians 2. So the whole reason is his mercy. Now, of course, we must give full effort to turn from our sin. We're not saying, therefore, don't do anything. Therefore, don't turn. But as we endeavor for new obedience, as even our catechism says, as we are commanded to repent in Scripture, we at the same time say, oh, Lord God, grant that repentance. And I think here it's helpful to consider a passage like Philippians 2.13 that says, he works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And it's interesting in our catechism when it talks about repentance, it says that we will have full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, a purpose and an endeavoring, you know, a will and an action. It seems like they're almost we're taking this from Philippians too. I think it's a great way to say he works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, he gives us a repentance. He calls us to want to do his will and to do his will. Now, on our part, though repentance comes from God, let's say at the same time, it means for you and me, and there's too little of this in our lives, that we resolve to change, 
that we plan how we're going to change. We try to take specific steps to change. We decide I'm going to have to avoid these things that led to that sin. We may have to avoid the occasions we strike at the first glimpses of sin. We want to develop character that opposes this sin. We want to become accountable to others. We are declaring war on our sin. So I'm not in any way lessening our responsibility, not taking any way away, anything away from throwing yourself completely into this battle. But as you do so, there's this helpless cry. Oh, Lord, God, change me. Work in me. Transform me, Lord. And because you are transforming, I throw myself, Lord, to obey you. Along these lines, Hebrews 13, 21 says in in the great uh, prayer or blessing of God, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That word equip is the same word in Mark one when they were mending their nets. Or it's the same word in Galatians 6, when one is fallen into a transgression, restore that one. So there's this idea of mending and restoring as well as equipping and furnishing us. Oh, Lord, mend me that I may do your will. And then it says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Those are precious passages. Philippians 2.13, Hebrews 13.20 to memorize and let those become a part of your prayers as you pray for change. Lord, you have promised that you would mend me and restore me and furnish and complete me, equip me for every good thing and that you would work in me that which is pleasing in your sight. So we are always running to him for healing and change. We always are admitting, I cannot fix myself. I can't even get part of the way there. You, Lord, must transform me. Repentance is a gift from God. Don't use that as an excuse. That means there is no excuse. You see, God's not reticent to give the gift of repentance. He's not waiting until you ask 35 times in exactly the right... If, if you helplessly trust him, he gives you repentance. It's a gift of his salvation freely poured out for his people. And so we come just as we are in all of our weakness, our failure, our sinfulness, our terrible attitudes, our hatred, our fear, our lust, whatever it is. And we say, Lord, here I am. I confess it openly. And Lord, I seek to change by your grace. Work in me that which is pleasing in your sight. And lastly, repentance is always undeserved. It's always undeserved. You know, when you I don't know much about this because I've never done it. But when you file for a grant, when you write up uh, an application or you write a something to receive a grant. Um, Part of that is to, of course, declare the need that is here. But part of it is also to recommend your organization and its ability to meet that need and how uh, useful it would be for the community because of the resources that you could bring to bear uh, in that community and perhaps how you've been successful in the past uh, in, in ministry. Well, we're coming to God to file for a grant, okay? The grant of repentance. 
But the problem is we don't deserve this grant at all. We have wasted all of our funds. That's how we come to God. We've come, we come to God saying, I've wasted all the funds you've given me. I've spent everything you've given me on myself, ultimately. That's how we come to God. We're not bringing, you know, I'm worthy and if you do so. Lord, I've taken all the strength and opportunity of my days and I've spent them to promote myself, to promote my comfort and my safety, my advancement, my reputation, my praise, my ease. Oh, Lord, grant me. (laughs) So your next breath is in spite of total sin. Oh, Lord, in mercy, grant me repentance. You see, we don't earn anything from him. It's not a reward of your obedience. It's not that God says, you know, you show me some pretty good stuff here. I'm willing to work with you. You've come this far on your own. I like that. I can work with someone of your capability. I'd like to invest in your future. I like what you're bringing to the table. But we, we're always wanting to bring something to the table, you know, like the Baal worshippers, something they could maybe coax God into doing something for them. It's always mercy. It's always in the light of failure. It's always only His grace. When I was a child, I probably had five, four or five major times from, say, eight years old to 14 years old of coming down front in the Methodist church. And there was a lot of weeping. And I remember walking. We were two blocks away from the church. And I remember a couple of those nights, it was on a Sunday night, walking home in tears and a sense of uh, freshness before God and Of course, three days later, everything was like it had always been in my life. I didn't understand repentance. I didn't understand forgiveness. I didn't understand grace. I was just promising to do better. That's all I was doing. Lord, I'm going to do different now. And I would say, if you'll forgive me, I'll never do this again. And of course, when I did it again, you know, I, I felt at that point that God was saying, To me, okay, if you won't do it again, I'll forgive you. But if you sin again, after I forgive you, there's no hope at all for you, dude. You You could forget about it. And Rick Downs, again, when he was pointing out what Luther says in his commentary on Galatians, says, when you're confronted by your sin and you go to God, Luther says, don't presume henceforth to satisfy the law as one who intends to live a better life. In other words... Lord, overlook my sin because I'm promising now to do better. You just need mercy for your sin. And in mercy, you ask him to work grace in your life. It's not an exchange. I'll do better if you'll... None of that. If we do that, then in terms of Galatians, we've, we've cast Christ aside. We said, we don't need you anymore, Lord Jesus. I'll take this one on my own. I'll offer something myself that could win this forgiveness. And I think that's part of what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says worldly sorrow produces death. Death. Not life. Not salvation. And in fact, the very question in the catechism is, what is repentance unto life? It's repentance to life. It's the same thing that Jesus speaks of in John 10.10. I've come that you might have Abundant life. 
Repentance is part of that being liberated from my destructive sin to walk more and more in the liberty of love, the joy of love, the joy of giving myself away to people. So it's a repentance for life because it's always undeserved. It's always attached to forgiveness. In fact, if you repent without some sense of the mercy of God, it's not repentance. We only repent because we perceive of the mercy of God. Again, our catechism states this. He says, convinced of the mercy of God. See? Convinced that there is forgiveness with Him. There will be a cleansing in the blood of Christ. And we love because He first loved us. We repent because we sense His love for us in Christ. We give ourselves. Why would we come to God except that we freely give ourselves to one who has loved us, loved us in Christ Jesus? So there is mercy for change. There is mercy for forgiveness. And may I say this, there is mercy because it's a repentance unto life. There's the mercy in the promise of a new life, not just strength to live a new life. But that the new life is the best possible life you could live. It's the life of enrichment. It's a life of joy. It's the life of peace that we give ourselves up to him. That by finding uh, life in him, I will give my in giving myself away to him, I should say, and, and burying the seed in the dirt in the in the words of Jesus in John 12, that the seed will produce much fruit. For instance, on the college campus, if I commit myself to a life of sexual purity or otherwise, not on the college campus, that I will treat every other woman or man as I would my own sister or my own brother until God gives me the different blessing of marriage. Do I believe that this is the way to draw from my life as a single person all the rich benefits that God has in store for me. See, that's part of trusting in his mercy is that by giving my life up to him, whatever he calls me, whatever he commands me to do, it's the very best life I could live. That staying free from all sexual expression, disconnected from marriage, is the way to blessing and enrichment and the avoidance of destruction and pain. So there's mercy to forgive you, mercy to change you, and mercy to taste the treasure of his fellowship and the treasure of living under his will. I love how uh, this, the, uh, it's put, and I just lost his name. I'll get it in just a second. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But you see how he put it? Love so amazing demands that I give up my soul and my life and everything to Him. And so that's why repentance is always undeserved. It's always connected with forgiveness. It's always driven by forgiveness. It's always in the context of forgiveness. It is always a gift of God. It is always a constant renewing and enriching of my relationship with God. And that's why the command to repent is not one time, but it's a life of repentance. Daily. We, we live in repentance. It's our new life. Trusting and repenting. Trusting and repenting. 
May God give us grace to walk in this new life. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for this gift of turning from sin, this gift of being set free from the deadly habits of sin, from being set free from attitudes that are opposed to our God. We thank you for your word, as we saw last week, that searches us out and discovers our sin, that discovers our selfishness, that discovers how we are refusing you and not trusting you and not adoring you. We thank you, Lord, that though we sinned against you, as David says, though our sin is personal, that you have given your son to die. Oh, Lord, if there is anyone here that has not begun to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, to trust for Christ, in Christ for forgiveness of sins, anyone here who has not said, Oh, Lord, my life has been opposed to you, I now submit it to your will. I put myself under your care and your word, your authority, that you may forgive my sins and change my life. Oh Lord, would you work in that person's heart even now, this day, drawing him, drawing her to turn from all sin, to give himself or herself to the precious Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, by your death, you have earned gloriously the right to be Lord of our lives. Where else is a place of safety? What other authority would we be under? What other God, Lord, than the God who has sacrificed himself for sinners? Oh, may this, may we be able to say, oh Lord, ourselves, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.